Adams Archive. Hello, you beautiful people, and welcome to the Adams Archive. My name is Austin Adams, and thank you so much for listening today. I am extremely excited about this episode. I talked about it already, what we are going to be doing today, and that is an interview with Mr. John F. Kennedy. Now, not Robert F. Kennedy and not the one who is currently running for president, but his uncle who was assassinated horrifically with plenty of conspiracies surrounding it. And we will be touching on all of that. We will be talking about John F. Kennedy and his assassination with him. We will be discussing Robert F. Kennedy running for president. We will even be jumping into whether or not he had a sexual affair with Marilyn Monroe, with the world famous uh, Santa baby, or no, not Santa baby, although that was pretty sexual too, but happy birthday um, by Marilyn Monroe in front of his wife nonetheless. So we will talk about that with him. And I guess you're wondering if you did not listen to this podcast or our previous podcast with George Orwell, how the hell that is possible. So I have brought John F. Kennedy back to life using several AI services by training it based on all of the accounts, all of the speeches, his tonality, the, to, the historical accounts of him by other people, um, his how he speaks, his vocabulary, uh, and what would be the most likely responses that he would give had he just woke from a time capsule today with the knowledge of what happened to him and everything that has been released since then. Now, in this format, I did ask him to speak with me as if we were sitting in a bar and having a drink together, as opposed to a formal presidential speech. Um, so I wanted to give it a little bit of an informal feel. But one thing that I'm very excited about with this is that today we are going to be doing it with John F. Kennedy's voice even. And it is pretty damn amazing. So I can't wait to see how this turns out. I hope you enjoy it. Now, I need one thing from you first. The first thing I need you to do is to go ahead and hit that subscribe button if you have not already. That means you'll be hearing conversations like this every single week, despite my last few weeks of layoff. <laughs> um, between being sick, going on my uh, fifth wedding anniversary with my wife, um, I have been away for several weeks, and uh, I appreciate you sticking with me. So um, now we will be back to our normal routine here with weekly, if not two a week um, as far as episodes go. Uh, so again, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. Without further ado, let's jump into it. The Adams Archive. I have therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived. And that is the most important topic on earth, peace. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war, not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children, not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. That straight, sleek look that it should have. And very often you'll find a zipper hidden in the uh, arm. In the Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You'll excuse the fact that I'm out of breath, but about 10 or 15 minutes ago, a tragic thing from all indications at this point has happened in the city of Dallas. Guide in our newsroom. Here's a uh, piece of copy that was rushed uh, to me and was torn off from the United Press. 
President Kennedy has been shot in Dallas. Along with Governor Connolly of Texas, they've been taken to Parkland Hospital there, where their condition is as yet unknown. And just now, we've received reports here at Parkland that Governor Connolly was shot in the upper left chest, and the first unconfirmed reports say the President was hit in the head. That's an unconfirmed report that the President was hit in the head. Police began chasing an unknown gunman across a railroad track. Would you see if they need some coffee or something? These people are awfully shaken up. They were in the line of fire. The president's car was some 50 feet when so we heard the first shot. And then as the car got directly in front of us, well, a gunshot from the top of the hill hit the president on the side, side of the temple. You know, where did the shots come from? The shot came from the hill. From the hill? Yes. Excuse me just a moment, John. Uh, there was just word from the hospital that they had dispatched a call for a neurosurgeon. All we can do now is pray for him, and it's about all we can do. President's wife, Jackie Kennedy, was not hurt. She walked into the hospital. A priest has been ordered. Emergency supplies of blood also being rushed to the hospital. Just a moment. Just a moment. We have a bulletin coming in. We now switch you directly to Parkland Hospital and KBOX News Director Bill Hampton. Two priests who were with President Kennedy say he is dead. <laughs> Just two priests announced it? Yes. But it's not the truth, is it? The flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. And there you have it. So that was a, a wonderfully compiled intro done by Oliver Stone's JFK Revisited documentary, which came out in 2021. Uh, following some more release of documents, it was actually a follow-up documentary to his original documentary, um, JFK Through the Looking Glass, in which he had some reenactments that were pretty incredible. Uh, so I highly, highly recommend you go watch this documentary. It's absolutely stunning the amount of evidence that has come out against the government, against the CIA, um, for partaking in this assassination against our own president of the United States. All right. So before we bring on John F. Kennedy, I do want to touch on this just a little bit. I highly, highly recommend you go watch this documentary if you have not already. This is one of the most documented uh, government conspiracies ever, and it has blown the lid off for me and so many people of what our government, and by government, I mean these shadow organizations like the CIA and FBI are truly capable of. And it's terrifying. If the CIA, which this documentary goes on to conclude, had such a part in this assassination to the point where there was cover-up after cover-up after cover-up from taking him from the original autopsy area, illegally transporting him to Washington, D.C. immediately to have an autopsy done by three people who had never done an autopsy before, only to write up fake reports after having an additional brain brought into the autopsy so that they could make it look and appear as if their narrative was correct, that there was one shooter, Lee Harvey Oswald. All right, so what I would like you to, to, to point out about all of this, Lee Harvey Oswald claimed his innocence until he was killed just three days after his assassination of John F. Kennedy. And that was by a man named Mr. Ferry. Now, Mr. Ferry had several uh, relationships within both the mafia and the CIA. Now, what you find, too, is that Lee Harvey Oswald also was a part of the CIA. His name was listed on documents regarding protected assets that were in, I believe it was the Soviet Union, where he allegedly defected. So there's all this evidence that Lee Harvey Oswald was a CIA asset, who, by the way, was only 24 at the time of this uh, assassination attempt. Now, there was also two more other shooters that were set up to be placed by the CIA with other names that have been brought forth since then that showed that not only did they try to conduct this here, but they actually tried to conduct it in Chicago prior to this. So you go down this unbelievable rabbit hole of all of this evidence, all of these people that were, you know, by the way, Mr. Ferry was also murdered just days after he killed Lee Harvey Oswald. There's a spider web of people who were murdered as a result 
that were somehow associated to Lee Harvey Oswald in the CIA. When you start to dig deeper and deeper into this and what this documentary takes you through is the unbelievable amount of effort, including basically repacking uh, John F. Kennedy's shattered skull with brains matter to make it appear as if there was not an entrance wound from the back of the head or an exit wound. So they tried to cover up and make it seem as if it was only Lee Harvey Oswald when there was a very obvious case towards multiple shooters. There was 40 different people who saw the body or were there at the time who claimed that there was an exit wound out the back of his head. So then you get into the magic bullet theory. So they, they through this documentary, you find out that there was not one shooter. There was at least two shooters, one from the front and one from the back. So this documentary takes you through all of this evidence, and it's extremely compelling in the way that it's done. Absolutely take the time out to listen to it and, and watch it because it, it's unbelievable the lengths that the government went to and went to, to to cover this up. So you dive down this rabbit hole and you find out that Mr. Kennedy was just one of the bravest people to ever hold the presidential role in office. Absolutely bar none. He stood up against the, the military industri industrial complex. He stood up against Alan Dooley's. And Alan Dooley's, we've talked about here before, who was the person who was the head of the CIA during MKUltra, was the head of the CIA during Operation Northwoods, which was only uncovered as an operation conducted against or, or to be conducted against Cuba, you know, on our own people on American soil to start a war with Cuba. So Alan Dooley's was was the head of all of this craziness going on through the CIA. And he was the reason uh, John F. Kennedy blamed him and the CIA for not giving him enough information, which caused the Bay of Pigs, which was this huge war catastrophe that that basically was a, a huge stain on John F. Kennedy's record because he didn't want to give air support because he wasn't given the proper information initially by the CIA and other government agencies, including Alan Dooley's and two other people, a part of the CIA, which he eventually got rid of and pushed out of office. So Alan Dooley's, right, again, talking about MK Ultra, talking about Operation Northwoods, talking about Operation Mongoose, was the head of the CIA during the time and was a part of all of these shady, shady things going on during the time. And John F. Kennedy didn't approve of it. He did not want us going to war in Vietnam. He did not want us going to war with Cuba, but Alan Dooley's did. And eventually, John F. Kennedy pushed him out of office as a result of this butting of heads and, and all of the, the misinformation, to use a, t a modern term, all of the, the um, wrong things that he was being told by Alan Dewey's and all of the things that he found out that he was doing that were horrific acts. The only reason that Operation Northwoods did not come to fruition was because John F. Kennedy did not sign off on the document. Everybody that needed to signed off on it until it got to his desk. Now, if you don't know about Operation Northwoods, Operation Northwoods was a governmental operation that was proposed by the CIA and the FBI to conduct pseudo-terrorist or pseudo-terrorist attacks against Americans and American soil to make it appear as if Cuba conducted them to allow us to go to war and put boots on the ground in Cuba. So all signed off. Now, one of those things that they conducted, and I did a whole episode on this, if you want to go back and, and listen to it. Um, I've done several, several episodes on, on the horrific things that happened under Alan Dulles um, in the CIA during the time, including MKUltra, including Operation Northwoods. But one of the main things that they, they did or were going to do, sorry, according to this document, was they were going to uh, make it appear as if there was an invasion on Guantanamo Bay by hiring uh Cuban defectors or, or anti-Castro uh, war uh, soldiers to conduct an attack and make it appear as if it was Cuba that did it in Castro. The next thing that they did planned on doing was uh, sinking a warship in the ocean, which you get to uh, the Gulf of Tonkin situation, which you find out basically was exactly this, where they made it appear as if um, the Gulf of Tonkin, which was the reason 
uh, th that we ended up actually going to war in the first place. Um, basically, what was the enactment of this that played out later uh, under Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, but it was the reason we went to war with Vietnam. And it's come to find out that it was actually not exactly how it played out. And it's very, very clearly seems to be exactly what Operation Northwoods had planned to do for our invasion with Cuba. Just they did it with Vietnam under Lyndon B. Johnson. So uh, what what ends up happening as a result of this butting of heads with Alan Dooley's is Alan Dooley's, the, the, the Warren Commission was put together as a result of John F. Kennedy's assassination. Um, the Warren Commission was a, a group of several, several uh, key political people, including the very person that John F. Kennedy ridded from, removed from office because of the way that he, and that he was so out of control while running the CIA. So the very person that he butt heads with the most, the very person that was planning on conducting terrorist attacks on American soil, um, and, and also, by the way, brought up the opportunity through Operation Northwoods to fly a drone plane, like a big airliner, over international waters and make it appear as if it was shot down by Cuban uh, air defense, shot down by Cuban planes, fighter planes. Hmm, sounds familiar, right? Maybe hijacking planes to cause a war. You know, we can get to how that relates to some current events as of, you know, maybe 2001 later and how Operation Northwoods plays into the idea that maybe our government would be capable of something like that, knowing that almost everybody within office signed off on this that needed to until it got to John F. Kennedy's desk and he denied those orders. So all of this to say that there is so much shadiness around John F. Kennedy's assassination. Now, that is one of the things that we're going to address when we speak with him in just a moment. And I wanted to give you some background information on that while we're going through that conversation. Okay. Uh, but go watch the documentary. It's truly incredible. Oliver Stone's JFK Revisited. Highly, highly recommend it. I've been diving in deep into this for over a week now on this topic um, so I could bring you guys this information. So highly recommend it. Go watch it. It's a great, great documentary that's done very, very well. Now, a little bit of more background. Let's talk about um, John F. Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe before we start to get to questions that we're asking him about. So John F. Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe had been several, several times over uh, accused of having an inappropriate sexual relationship outside of his marriage during his presidency, which John F. Kennedy was seemingly known for pretty well being some type of player during his, uh, during his time as president. But uh, let's go ahead and read this. It says John F. Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe were undoubtedly two of the most iconic figures of their time. Both commanded an extraordinary amount of public attention. And it's this intersecting of their past that forms the basis for a rumor that has been persistent in popular culture a possible affair between them. Perhaps the most compelling event that substantiates this claim is Monroe's sultry rendition of happy birthday. If you go recall that, this is the most sexual happy birthday ever um, for Mr. Kennedy at a Democratic fundraiser in Madison Square Garden on May 19th of 1962. Monroe's glamorous president and Kennedy's known history of extramarital affairs sets the stage for public speculation about a possible relationship between the two. Moreover, several accounts and books have suggested that Monroe and JFK had met in private on more than one occasion. Robert Slatzer, a journalist and alleged former husband of Monroe, even claimed that Monroe had confessed to him about the affair. Additionally, Monroe's close friend, Jean Carmen, claimed in several interviews that Monroe had revealed details about the affair to her. Despite their public high profiles, some argue that both Monroe and JFK had experience in managing their public images, which might have been able to maintain a clandestine relationship without maintaining or leaving substantial evidence. Moreover, given their respective statuses and the fact that they were contemporaries, their paths would have naturally crossed in the circles they moved in. When it comes to the tragic end of Monroe's life, the mystery deepens. Monroe's death was ruled a probable suicide due to a drug overdose. But the circumstances surrounding her death have led to various conspiracy theories, with some suggesting that she was murdered because she knew too much, possibly as a result of her alleged affair with JFK. 
One theory is that Monroe had was privy to classified information because of her relationship with JFK and perhaps felt slighted and even used, threatening to reveal sensitive information. Another theory postulates that Monroe was silenced to prevent her from damaging Kennedy's reputation and presidency by going public about the affair. Adding fuel to these theories is the fact that Monroe's house was bugged, as admitted by private detective Fred Otash, who claimed to have tapes of Monroe having sex with JFK. The existence of these tapes, although never confirmed, raises the question if the affair was indeed a fabrication. Why would there be a need for surveillance? Hmm. While there's no hard evidence that can conclusively verify the alleged affair between JFK and Monroe, or directly link it to Monroe's death, the circumstantial evidence coupled with the inconsistencies and secrecy shrouded by both their lives made these theories compelling to many. The narratives of power, seduction, and mystery surrounding JFK and Monroe continue to intrigue the public, contributing to the enduring allure of this iconic duo. So there's your background on John F. Kennedy and Monroe, Marilyn Monroe. Um, now, this is not to disparage John F. Kennedy's character. This is not to do anything other than give you the background for some of the questions that I'm going to be asking that are, are a little bit uh, more edgy in the way. But that's how I like to do these interviews with these uh, celebrities, with these fictional or these historical figures, is I think it's fair to address these situations and get the response that maybe they would be most likely to have today in hindsight if they were still alive. But that is nothing to take away from JFK. He is one of the most unbelievable speakers of all time as a president. Um, his his speech on peace, his his movement towards desegregation, um, everything. He he had such a profound impact on our country, and so many people loved JFK for a reason. Now, watching some of his speeches more recently, uh, I too have have come to really really um, appreciate how presidential he was during his time as president. Um, being as young as he was as president, but also being a, an unbelievable public speaker, which as we all know, is kind of the role of the president today is is more so a figurehead, um, kind of like, uh, you know, queen or king rather than somebody who actually does things. Um, so <laughs> uh, without further ado, I would like to introduce Mr. John F. Kennedy. It is truly my pleasure to speak with you today, Mr. Kennedy. My name is Austin Adams, and today we're going to be having a discussion on the Adams Archive podcast. It's absolutely a tragedy what happened to you, and I truly hope together today that we can have a discussion that impacts Americans around the country. In light of all of the truth that has come out recently from documentaries from over 2 million documents that have come out from the National Archives. Let's see what type of discussion that we can have today that gets and discusses some of these truths that have come out. Um, first, for the audience who may not be familiar for, with your life or accomplishments, can you please give an overview of your childhood, your rise to fame and power, your biggest accomplishments, pop culture incidents, I don't know, embarrassments, biggest political quarrels, even with the CIA and maybe Alan Dooley's and other institutions, and then Please touch on your eventual assassination. Austin, my dear fellow, it's an honor to be here. And don't fret about the past. Tragedy, yes, but we're here now, and that's something to be grateful for. Let's start at the beginning, then. I was born in Brookline, Massachusetts in 1917. My father, Joseph Kennedy, was a prominent businessman, and my mother, Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy, came from a political family. My childhood was one of comfort, but also of competition. In the Kennedy household, we were always encouraged to strive for greatness, to push our limits. I served in the Navy during the Second World War, a time that shaped me significantly. I commanded a patrol torpedo boat, the PT-109, which was rammed and sunk by a Japanese destroyer. I swam, pulling one of my injured crew members behind me until we reached an island. It was there that I learned the importance of courage, of leadership, and of the grit required to survive. After the war, I entered politics, serving in the U.S. House of Representatives and then in the Senate. In 1960, I ran for president, facing off against Richard Nixon. The televised debates were a first, and they played a significant role in my victory. I was the youngest man elected president and the first Catholic to hold the office. 
My time in office was marked by a series of triumphs and tribulations. The Cuban Missile Crisis was a time of great tension, but we managed to avoid nuclear war. The establishment of the Peace Corps, the advancement of civil rights, the commitment to land a man on the moon, these are things I'm proud of. But there were struggles as well. The Bay of Pigs invasion was an embarrassment, a failure that I took responsibility for. There were also conflicts with various institutions, including the CIA. We had disagreements about foreign policy, about the way forward, about the role of covert operations. Then, of course, there was Dallas, the 22nd of November, 1963, a day etched in the annals of history. I was in a motorcade in Dealey Plaza when I was fatally shot. It was an abrupt end to a journey that was just beginning, but enough about that. I've always believed that one must look forward, not backward. And so I hope our discussion today can inspire, can enlighten, and can contribute to the ever-evolving American story. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Austin, truly. Let's dive into our conversation. Thank you so much for that amazing summary of your life's accomplishments. I, I actually didn't know a few of the things that you just touched on there. So um, thank you very much for, for enlightening us about those things and your bravery and your courage. Uh, you were truly an impressive president who stood up to the establishment. And let's, let's start with some general questions for you. What is it today about modern politics that surprises you uh, compared to where you would have thought we would have been as a nation or about the leadership that we have? Well, Austin, I must admit that politics today strikes me as both familiar and alien. The issues have changed, the technology has advanced, and the discourse has shifted. But the essence of leadership, the core principles of public service, remain the same. I observe a deepening polarization, a schism that threatens to divide our great nation. The art of compromise, once the lifeblood of democracy, seems to be fading. But we must remember, as I once said, let us not seek the Republican answer or the Democratic answer, but the right answer. Let us not seek to fix the blame for the past. Let us accept our own responsibility for the future. As for the leadership, it is not my place to judge. Each leader must face the unique challenges of their time. But I will say this. True leadership requires courage, vision, and a commitment to the greater good. It requires the ability to inspire, to unite, and to chart a course for a better future. Leadership, in its finest form, is service. Finally, I must say that the rise of technology, especially social media, is truly astounding. It has the power to connect us, to inform us, to empower us. But it also has the potential to mislead, to divide, and to inflame. We must tread carefully in this new digital age, remembering to seek out truth, to listen with empathy, and to engage in respectful discourse. In the end, my dear Austin, the state of our nation rests not on the shoulders of one leader or one institution, but on the collective will of the people. So let us strive together for a more united, more compassionate, more enlightened America. That is the America I dreamed of. That is the America I believe in. Absolutely. So it's interesting that you bring up social media today because it is a part of that divide that you are speaking to. The lack of discourse, right? When you have social media companies shadow banning one side of the conversation and not the other is just speaks to the power that, you know, as, as we've come to find out with things like the Twitter files, the government is playing a role in actively censoring people on one side of the political spectrum to, as we learned about uh, the Hunter Biden laptop, the CIA, even after your assassination, is still going to great lengths to cover up things just in a new way. Now, given that you brought up social media, I'd, I'd love to know, um, you had incredible charisma as a president and, and more than almost any president ever and an amazing connection with, with the American public. How, how would you have used social media platforms like Twitter and Instagram today? Austin, it's a fascinating question. I must admit, these tools of technology are a far cry from the television broadcasts of my day. But I can see their immense potential for connection, for communication, for sparking a dialogue. If I were to use platforms like Twitter and Instagram, I would strive to use them as a force for unity, for education, and for inspiration. 
They would serve as a conduit between the Oval Office and the American people, a way to bypass the intermediaries and speak directly to the citizens of this great nation. I would share not just the triumphs of my administration, but also the challenges, the moments of doubt, the hard decisions. I believe in the power of transparency, of authenticity. It's important for the people to see the presidency not as a pedestal, but as a position of service. Moreover, I would use these platforms to highlight the stories of everyday Americans, the unsung heroes who make our nation what it is. I believe in the power of storytelling, in the power of shared experiences. It's these stories that bind us together, that remind us of our shared humanity. But let me be clear, Austin. Social media, like any tool, can be used for good or ill. It's important to use it responsibly, to uphold the standards of truth, respect, and decency. The power of these platforms should not be underestimated, nor should it be abused. As for the issues you raise about censorship, shadow banning, and the like, they are deeply concerning. Freedom of speech is one of the cornerstones of our democracy. It's important to have a diversity of voices, a marketplace of ideas. If there are forces at play that are stifling this freedom, then they must be addressed. The pursuit of truth should always be our guiding principle. In the end, social media is simply a tool. It's how we use it that matters. And I would strive to use it as a force for good, for unity, and for progress. Very well stated, Mr. Kennedy. And uh, I guess one of the things that you touched on there was the usefulness by the government in the censorship of our own citizens. And one of the places where we saw the most egregious of those actions was recently during COVID. We saw people's trust in institutions Almost every one of them, like the government, news, media, health organizations, has been completely lost due to the lack of truthfulness and the censorship that came out of those institutions alongside uh, organizations like Twitter. Capitalizing on this time for profits and giving favor to those who even funded their campaigns, do you think this loss of trust is justified? And, and how would you remedy this situation if you were president today? Austin, the erosion of trust in our institutions is indeed a matter of grave concern. Trust is the bedrock of a functioning democracy. Without it, we risk falling into a chasm of mistrust and disillusionment. It is not for me to say whether this loss of trust is justified. Each citizen must judge for themselves based on their experiences, their perceptions, their understanding of the facts. What I will say is this. Institutions, like individuals, are fallible. They make mistakes. They falter. But it is how they respond to these failures, how they learn and grow and improve, that truly matters. If I were president today, I would strive to restore this trust in a number of ways. Firstly, I would champion transparency. The American people have a right to know what their government is doing, why it's doing it, and what the results are. Information should be shared openly and honestly without spin or obfuscation. Secondly, I would work to hold institutions accountable. When mistakes are made, there should be consequences. And when wrongdoing is uncovered, there should be justice. No institution, no matter how powerful, should be above the law. Thirdly, I would foster a culture of service. Institutions exist to serve the people, not the other way around. This ethos of service should permeate every aspect of our government, from the highest office to the humblest bureau. Finally, I would engage in a dialogue with the American people. I would listen to their concerns, their fears, their hopes. I would seek to understand their perspective, and I would strive to address their needs. A leader must be in touch with the people they serve. These are challenging times, Austin, but I believe in the resilience of the American people. I believe in our ability to come together to rebuild trust and to forge a brighter future. It won't be easy, but then again, nothing worth doing ever is. Fair enough, Mr. President. I agree with you on most accounts, maybe not in the way that these institutions have actually responded to this. And I think that if you looked into a little bit about the, those responses, you may agree with me. However, another egregious thing that we're seeing in today's modern society is the institutions, corporations, government, and and. Uh, shadowy figures of this world really pushing uh, 
in today's modern society for some weird sexualization of our culture from men dressing as women, even entering into sports and, and beating the women in women only sports leagues to men being allowed in women's bathroom. If they bathrooms, if they identify as women to weird sexual parades being done in front of children and, and celebrating it, given the time frame that you came from and the weakening of the American man. What, what are your thoughts on this? I see that we have ventured into a territory of profound complexity and sensitivity. I want to emphasize the importance of this dialogue. It is through such conversations that we, as a nation, can navigate the myriad of challenges before us. On the topic of gender identity and the changing cultural norms, I understand there are many who feel unsettled. Change, particularly on this scale, can be disconcerting. I grew up in a time when certain social norms and definitions were largely unquestioned. To see those norms shifting in such fundamental ways could undoubtedly be disconcerting. While I respect and uphold the rights of individuals to self-identify and live in a way that is authentic to them, I also recognize the concerns raised about maintaining the integrity and fairness of certain institutions, such as sports. The challenge lies in finding a balanced approach that respects individual rights, while also preserving fairness and safety. In terms of cultural sexualization, I share your concern. It's one thing for adults to express their sexuality in a mature and consensual manner. However, it's quite another when such displays become inappropriate or are forced upon those who are not of an appropriate age or who do not wish to partake. In some, Austin, I understand the concerns and unease that many feel in the face of these significant societal shifts. While I firmly believe in the rights of all individuals to live authentically, I also recognize the need for boundaries, fairness, and respect for all. Striking that balance is no easy task, but it is a task we must undertake with care, compassion, and a deep respect for the dignity of all individuals involved. I can agree with you on most accounts, Mr. President, and I appreciate your response. Now, when it comes to sexualization, something that comes to mind for me was there has been many accounts, including alleged recordings, which seem to prove that you had a sexual affair with Marilyn Monroe. What, what is your response to these claims? And did or would you like to admit to that affair today, given light of the information that we have now? In other words, John F. Kennedy, were you having sex with Marilyn Monroe? Austin, I understand your curiosity and the public's interest in such matters. It's important to remember that those were different times, with different norms and expectations around privacy. However, we are living in a more transparent era now, and I appreciate that people are looking for honest answers. In regards to Marilyn Monroe, she was indeed a fascinating figure, a star whose light shone brightly in our culture. We were acquaintances, as were many in the circles we moved in. However, any further details about our relationship, beyond what is public knowledge, are a matter of personal history. It's important to note that speculation and conjecture can often paint an incomplete or inaccurate picture. In my lifetime, I've learned that there are many facets to people and relationships that may not be immediately apparent or understood by outsiders. It is my belief that such aspects of personal life should be respected. I hope this provides some perspective, Austin, while respecting the privacy and dignity of all individuals involved. It's a delicate balance to strike, but one that I believe is important. I appreciate that you will not kiss and tell. But if you did it, it's Marilyn Monroe, and I don't exactly blame you. <laughs> now, the next question that I have for you is that there is a theory that Marilyn Monroe, in her passing, there's a conspiracy surrounding it, that she was murdered to prevent her from disclosing possible classified information that you potentially leaked to her, or even to stop her from disclosing the relationship that she had with you. 
What is your take on this theory? And do you believe it to potentially be true, especially given the light that you were now known to be assassinated by your own government? The untimely passing of Marilyn Monroe was a tragic event that shocked the nation. It's deeply saddening that her life, so full of talent and promise, was cut short. As to the theories surrounding her death, I must admit they are indeed disturbing. However, I firmly believe in the importance of evidence, due process, and the rule of law. While it's not unusual for high-profile cases such as this to attract a host of theories, it's essential that we base our conclusions on solid evidence. Without such evidence, any assertion remains just that, a theory. As for the suggestion that she was silenced to prevent her from disclosing classified information or details about our relationship, I can assure you that such an idea is completely without foundation. During my presidency, I maintained the utmost respect for the security and confidentiality of classified information, and I would never have compromised that trust. Moreover, the idea that anyone would be harmed because of their association with me is profoundly distressing. I have always endeavored to conduct my personal and professional life with integrity and respect for the well-being of others. As to your point about my own assassination, the circumstances surrounding that event are indeed fraught with questions and mystery. However, I feel it would be a disservice to the memory of Marilyn Monroe to conflate her tragic death with these broader conspiracies. The loss of Marilyn Monroe was a tragedy, a blow to the world of cinema and to her countless fans around the globe. We should remember her for her talent, her beauty, her spirit, and her enduring impact on our culture, rather than as a subject of speculation and intrigue. Speaking of assassinations, how would you react to the claim made in Oliver Stone's film JFK Revisited that shows substantial evidence that your assassination was highly orchestrated plot by the CIA, including the theory of the magic bullet, which has been since disproven, as a conspiracy that the they actually dropped a bullet on the gurney that you were laying on and showed the absurdity that it would be for the magic bullet theory to be correct. What are your thoughts on this, as well as the overall idea that you were assassinated by the CIA? Austin, the events surrounding my assassination are indeed shrouded in mystery and have been the subject of countless investigations and theories. It's deeply unsettling to consider that such a tragedy could be the result of a plot within my own government. As for the theory put forth by Oliver Stone in JFK Revisited, I recognize the significant amount of research and investigation that went into his work. His perspective is certainly compelling and raises troubling questions about the official narrative. The magic bullet theory, as it has been called, is one such element that has been widely scrutinized and in many ways challenged by experts over the years. The idea that a bullet could cause seven wounds on two different people and emerge in near pristine condition is indeed difficult to accept at face value. It's an aspect of the case that certainly warrants further examination and I must admit raises questions in my own mind. As for the broader allegation that my assassination was orchestrated by the CIA and Alan Dulles, it's a deeply distressing notion. Alan Dulles served this country in numerous capacities, and while we had our differences, particularly in regard to the Bay of Pigs incident, it's hard for me to imagine him orchestrating such a heinous act. However, the revelations that have emerged over the years have shown that there were certainly forces within our government and beyond that did not align with my vision for the country. Whether that extended to a plot to end my life is a question that, unfortunately, may never be fully answered. In the end, Austin, the truth about my assassination remains elusive. While it's important to seek answers and to hold those responsible to account, we must also remember the ideals and aspirations that define my presidency. Let us continue to strive for a world characterized by peace, equality, and justice and not allow the circumstances of my death to overshadow the work we set out to accomplish. Absolutely. And, and in light of the evidence presented in the documentary, there seems to have been an unbelievable amount of cover-ups, including, the first off, the fact that the very person that you removed as the head of the CIA, Alan Dulles, 
was put on the Warren Commission and the vast, vast amount of cover-ups that came out of the Warren Commission. What, what is your reaction to that? And your thoughts on Alan Dulles being put in that position to begin with. Austin, I must say that the circumstances you describe are indeed deeply disconcerting. The fact that Alan Dulles, a man with whom I had a significant political disagreement, was appointed to the Warren Commission, the body responsible for investigating my death, raises profound questions about the impartiality and thoroughness of the investigation. The Warren Commission was tasked with a momentous responsibility to provide a comprehensive and truthful account of my assassination. The American people deserve nothing less. Yet the numerous criticisms and questions that have emerged in the years since the Commission's report was published suggest that there may have been significant omissions or even misrepresentations in its findings. The appointment of Dulles, given our prior disagreements, could certainly be perceived as a conflict of interest. I had relieved him of his position as director of the CIA following the failed Bay of Pigs invasion, a debacle for which I took full responsibility, but for which I also believe Dulles shared a significant portion of the blame. His subsequent role on the Warren Commission could therefore be seen as problematic, to say the least. It is my hope that the truth about my assassination and the events surrounding it will one day be fully revealed. Regardless of who may have been involved or what their motivations may have been, the American people have a right to know. I would hope that all those in positions of power, past and present, would honor this fundamental principle of our democracy. Absolutely. And in retrospect, Mr. Kennedy, is there anything that you might have done differently, knowing how everything played out now, to mitigate the risk of a potential threat from within your own administration or the CIA? And what advice would you give to future presidents to help prevent such an outcome? Austin, hindsight is always 2020th, as they say. Looking back, there are certainly decisions I made and actions I took that, with the benefit of current knowledge, I might have approached differently. However, it's important to remember that every choice I made was with the best interests of the American people in mind, given the information and circumstances at the time. With regard to mitigating threats from within my own administration or the CIA, I believe one crucial lesson is the importance of maintaining a robust system of checks and balances. No individual or institution should wield unchecked power or operate outside the purview of accountability. This principle is at the very heart of our democratic system. Furthermore, I would stress the importance of transparency. A government that operates in the shadows breeds mistrust and suspicion. While there are certainly matters of national security that require confidentiality, it is essential that this not be used as a cover for activities that undermine the principles and values we hold dear. As for advice to future presidents, I would say this. Always remember that you are a servant of the people, first and foremost. Your duty is to uphold the Constitution, protect the rights of all citizens, and work tirelessly to build a more just and peaceful world. Be vigilant in guarding against the concentration of power whether it be in your own office, within the government, or in external institutions such as the CIA. Ensure that these entities are held accountable and operate within the bounds of the law. Finally, have the courage to stand up for what you believe is right, even when it is unpopular or met with resistance. The role of president is not an easy one, and you will be faced with many difficult decisions. But remember, the ultimate measure of a leader is not where they stand in moments of comfort and convenience, but where they stand in times of challenge and controversy. Absolutely. And, and speaking of future presidents, I don't know if you know this, Mr. Kennedy, but your nephew, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., is now a candidate to be the president of the United States. Given the current political climate, what do you think makes him a strong candidate for presidency? 
And what pieces of advice would you give him about his presidential campaign and if he does become president? It's heartening to learn that Bobby Jr. is continuing the Kennedy legacy of public service. The Kennedy family has always believed in the power of political participation to affect change and shape the future of our country. Bobby Jr., like the rest of our family, is no stranger to the challenges and rewards of public service. His advocacy work in environmental law and his commitment to preserving the natural world make him an important voice in today's political discourse. His dedication to these causes and his willingness to speak truth to power are qualities I greatly admire and believe will resonate with many Americans. As for advice, I would tell Bobby Jr. the same thing I would tell any aspiring leader. Stay true to your principles and beliefs and never lose sight of why you entered public service in the first place. It's easy to get caught up in the machinery of politics, but the heart of leadership lies in serving the public and working to make a difference in people's lives. If he does become president, I would remind him that the presidency is not just about policy and legislation. It's about setting a moral tone for the country. The president has the power to inspire, to bring people together, and to call on our better angels. I would encourage him to use that power wisely. Finally, I would caution him to be vigilant against those who may seek to undermine his efforts, whether from within or outside the administration. As we have discussed, there are forces at play in the world of politics that do not always align with the interests of the American people. He must be prepared to face these challenges head on with courage and integrity. I'm proud of Bobby Jr. for stepping into the arena and putting his hat in the ring for the presidency. It's a daunting task, but I have every confidence that he will rise to the occasion. Well, Mr. President, I'm sure he would love to hear that message, and I agree with you. His ability to speak truth to power, just as you did to the CIA, he did in his book, The Real Anthony Fauci, and has continued to do in speaking out both against your assassination by the CIA, as well as many other topics that he continues to touch on in today's world. Now, let's let's uh, end this here with a few fun ones, Mr. President. The first of which being you notably are very well known for giving a speech which directly led to NASA's Apollo mission to the moon. And since then, many people have picked apart the footage and due to modern science, believe the moon landing was faked to show superiority to the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Do you believe the Apollo mission was faked based on all the available modern evidence? And do you think that we would have been justified in faking the moon landing in light of the Cold War if for nothing other than just conserving financial resources? Your question brings to mind the spirit of exploration and discovery that I sought to inspire in the American people with the challenge to reach the moon. I firmly believed then, as I do now, in the capacity of our nation to achieve great things when we set our minds to it. Given the multitude of scientific evidence and personal testimonies of those involved, I have no reason to doubt the veracity of the Apollo mission. Our astronauts, scientists, and engineers worked tirelessly and put their lives on the line in the pursuit of this extraordinary achievement. To dismiss their accomplishments as a fabrication would be a disservice to their courage, dedication, and ingenuity. As for the idea of faking the moon landing as a strategic move in the Cold War, I must respectfully disagree with that notion. While it's true that the space race was a significant aspect of our rivalry with the Soviet Union, the ultimate goal was always more than a mere show of superiority. The pursuit of space exploration was and remains a testament to our shared human desire to explore the unknown and push the boundaries of what we are capable of. Moreover, the premise of faking such a monumental achievement goes against the very principles of honesty, transparency, and authenticity that I believe are vital to the functioning of our democracy. We must strive to be a nation that leads by example, not only in our accomplishments, but in our integrity. So in light of all that, I remain steadfast in my belief that we did, indeed, land on the moon. The moon landing stands as a testament to the power of human ingenuity and the indomitable spirit of exploration. It's a triumph not just for America, but for all mankind. Yeah, I could see how you would think that. So there's, there's plenty of people who disagree, but 
<laughs> we'll leave it at that. Now, speaking of space exploration, there has been very, very many accounts of UFOs, UAPs, and aliens in today's modern society that is widely accepted and even has gone as far to having many governmental commissions surrounding these findings. What are your thoughts on UFOs, extraterrestrials, and aliens? And do you believe that they were around during your administration, as many people also seem to believe? Austin, the question of extraterrestrial life and unidentified flying objects is an intriguing one indeed. During my presidency, the topic of UFOs was certainly present, as it has been for many decades. The fascination with the unknown and the vast expanses of space has always captured the human imagination. With regard to my personal beliefs, I must say the universe is vast beyond comprehension. We know so little about it even now. It would seem quite presumptuous to assume that in this vastness, we are the only life. However, believing in the possibility of life elsewhere in the universe and asserting the presence of extraterrestrial beings visiting Earth are two different things. While I was president, we didn't have any concrete evidence to suggest that these unidentified flying objects were linked to extraterrestrial beings. Mostly they were just that, unidentified. They could have been experimental aircraft, atmospheric phenomena, or a host of other things. However, if indeed there are new findings and credible investigations being conducted now, as you suggest, I would be most interested in seeing where they lead. The search for truth and understanding should always be at the forefront of our inquiries, regardless of where they may take us. As with the moon landing, our pursuit of knowledge and understanding is a testament to our shared human desire to explore and comprehend the world and universe around us. So in short, I'm open to the possibilities, but also a firm believer in the importance of evidence and rigorous scientific investigation. I look forward to seeing where these new avenues of exploration might lead us. I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I believe that in my lifetime that this will all be confirmed if it hasn't been basically already. Now, the last thing, Mr. President, I would like to give you an open floor to speak to the American people, to speak to the current president of the United States, and to say whatever it is that you believe knowing what you know now and having this last moment of breath before you go back to your resting place, what would you leave us with? Thank you, Austin. It's a profound privilege to have this opportunity to address the American people once more. And I wish to express my deep and abiding faith in the strength, resilience, and enduring spirit of our great nation. To the American people, I say this. Never lose sight of the power you hold. Democracy is not a spectator sport, and your voice matters. Stay informed, ask questions, challenge assumptions, and always strive to improve your world. Remember that our greatest strength lies not in our wealth or military might, but in our commitment to freedom, justice, and the dignity of all people. To the current president, I say, the office you hold is one of immense responsibility and privilege. It is a role that demands wisdom, compassion, and unyielding integrity. Always remember that you are a servant of the people, not their master. Let their needs, hopes, and aspirations guide your decisions. And let the principles of our great nation, liberty, equality, and justice, be your compass. Lastly, to all, I leave you with a simple piece of advice. Let us not despair, but act. Let us not seek the Republican answer or the Democratic answer, but the right answer. Let us not seek to fix the blame for the past. Let us accept our own responsibility for the future. The challenges we face are great, but so too is our capacity to meet them if we stand together with a shared vision and unwavering commitment to the common good. I have no doubt that the American people are up to the task. Thank you, and God bless you all. Thank you, Mr. President, for your time. This was an amazing conversation. I hope our audience took something from it. I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. I look forward to if we decide to have a dis having a discussion again with you in the future when more evidence potentially comes out, or maybe even when your nephew, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., 
potentially gets elected. Have a good night. Austin, the pleasure has been all mine. It was indeed a stimulating conversation, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to engage in this dialogue with you. I look forward to the possibility of another discussion in the future, perhaps under new circumstances or with new insights to share. Until then, I wish you all the best in your endeavors. Keep asking questions, keep seeking truth, and keep inspiring others to do the same. Thank you again, Austin. Good night, and Godspeed. And with that, my friends, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. I truly hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Mr. Kennedy. Go listen to the documentary. Dive deep into this rabbit hole because it will do nothing but continue to chip away at the foundational belief that we have been lied to about, that the American government has anything but their best interest in mind because that's all it was. That's what we saw here was a group of individuals, people, just people who are power hungry, money hungry, and with nothing but the capacity for hate in their heart, as we've seen play time over time again since this assassination. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. Again, the documentary was JFK Revisited by Oliver Stone. Subscribe, leave a five-star review, head over to antielite.club to make your order. Um, there's some awesome t-shirts, hats, sweaters. We got it. All right, guys. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'll see you next time. 